fiber one. Oh, okay. The first one is, is fiber one food bars. Now, understand that this was not a one-time occurrence. I don't remember exactly. I don't know if it happened 10 times or 20 times. I would eat one of them and I couldn't stop eating. And I would eat either 10 or 20. I remember eating 20 a bunch of times. And if you're going to have an eating binge with fiber one food bars, I would suggest that you drink plenty of fluid because one time I didn't and I had gastric distress. Now, if anyone has ever done that, the next day you will be in the bathroom about 12 times. It is unbelievable what happens to your body the next day. But the lunacy was that knowing this was coming, I couldn't stop eating them. That's craziness. That I do not have normal thoughts about foods. I'm not a normal eater. My second illustration is, is clear. Uh, I think it makes it clear. Double stuffed Oreo cookies, a 15 ounce package, 2,100 calories, large glass of milk. You know, hey, milk is nutritious. And the fiber one food bars, well, they have fiber, they're good for you. Not when you eat 20 of them. But anyway, the double stuffed Oreo cookies. I would sit down and I would eat the first row. And by the time I get into the second row, they don't taste good, but I keep eating them. And I eat and I eat and I'm halfway through the third row. My stomach hurts and I finish the package. That's lunacy. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm not gonna bore you with all the things I ever compulsively overate. And I will just mention for general information, I have two binge foods that to some people may seem strange. One of them is dried fruit because I would go to Costco and buy a big two pound bag of figs and once I started eating them, I just, I would, I would eat an insane portion. I don't even know how many. And the other thing is food bars. A food bar is a candy bar that they put a little protein in and they put a picture of somebody running on the thing. And all of a sudden you think, well, this is nutritious. No, it's not. Four metrics bars, 1,640 calories, an unplanned snack. On what planet does that do anyone any good? My best thinking got me to 310 pounds, 42.5% body fat. I was like a drug addict. I would eat these foods and I would gorge myself and I needed the stuff to get me through that night so I would be okay. And I would tell myself the same lie night after night after night, tomorrow, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to get some exercise, but I need this now. I need this now. Um, oh, we get to see pictures. If I can get my phone to work, uh, I would do the screen share, but I'm technically challenged. I don't know how to do that. Here's a picture of me when I was fat. I was big. I'm not even sure if that was at my peak. And because I'm, I'm giving a talk, I'm going to give people advice that if you lose a hundred pounds, never ever point your face down 
and shoot the picture up. That's a bad idea. And yes, that's a funny picture. That's really me. And that's how I look like now. I think it's funny. And then the last one, um, it's just a glimpse of me when I was a youth. Here's a picture of me with my sister. That was during my cross-dressing phase. That was me, I think it was three or something. I'm glad my dad took that picture. I think it's pretty funny. Um, I went to a, a, a health institute in 2007, October the 21st. And when I got there, I weighed 305 pounds. 67 weeks later, I weighed 197 pounds. I started out at 42% body fat and wound up at 14% body fat, a healthy weight. And I took my weight off in a health, healthy manner. I did not hurt my health. Uh, my resting pulse when I started was around 80. When I was finished and today, my resting pulse is 55. And I would just mention at one point, my HDL got to 19, which is not good. I think the last time I had it checked, it was 58. That's a good, that's a good HDL. And I did that through a combination of diet and exercise. <clears throat> then years later, I got some arthritis in my knees. I couldn't exercise. And all of a sudden I couldn't stop the eating binges. For three years, my doctor, my orthopedic guy said, if you'll lose that extra weight, I was right around 240 pounds. And strangely enough, I was grateful to be at the 240 pounds because that's what I learned at that health institute to be grateful for what I had, to be grateful for the progress I had made. But uh, I came to the Overeaters Anonymous because I couldn't stop the eating binges. I would gain five pounds one week and then lose five pounds the next. I just couldn't stop eating. And I came to one meeting a week for six months. And then one, one morning, uh, uh, April the 7th, 2016, Somebody said, if you keep having an eating binge with that food, don't eat it. And the scales fell off my eyes. And I had a spiritual experience at the Saturday morning meeting here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I realized that I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm not like other people. I cannot eat the way that normal people eat. I'm different. Um, I will mention some other things. These are... When I came to the Overeaters Anonymous, I didn't have any friends. I had personality problems. I, I was not a pleasant person to be around. And then uh, when I got a sponsor, I got a sponsor. I wanted to work the steps. I wanted to get better. But I also wanted to have somebody to talk to on the phone. And when you only have one friend in the world, that friend is very precious. My, my sponsor saw potential in me that I didn't see because she helped me to get rid of some of my defects of character. They're not all gone, but some of them. And uh, I would just mention uh, 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 something which doesn't make me look very good, but I was 62 years old when I, when I came into Overeaters Anonymous and the first sympathy card that I ever sent to anyone on the death of somebody in their family was when I was in the Overeaters Anonymous, when I was 62 years old. And I do that now, I send sympathy cards to people, which is very normal, but I didn't do it. I was not a very nice fellow. 
Um, I listen to my sponsor. I do most of what she tells me to do. Not all. I'm not there yet. And then, uh, oh, I, I have my notes in kind of a funny way. Sorry. Um, I'm as serious as a heart attack about my program. And I would mention to you that it is, it is easier to change your environment than it is to change your mind. One of the things I've learned at that health institute is if you have binge foods, trigger foods, whatever you want to call them, I call them alcoholic foods, don't have them in the house. Just don't have them in the house. And then I, I, my wife, she's not a compulsive overeater and she will have cookies in the, in the cupboard. But what I will do is I will wrap those cookies in aluminum foil so I don't see them. Now I'm not going to eat them anyway, but not seeing them makes a huge difference. And not only is it the negative that you don't have trigger foods in the house, but I make sure that I have good nutritious food in my house to eat. So it's there. So I, I have something to eat. Uh, part of what I do is I do, I do heating and air. I'm a heating and air contractor, which there's only me. I don't, <laughs> I don't have employees. There's just me. But I carry emergency food on my van. And then the other thing is when I leave in the morning, I, I pack my food that I'm going to eat during the day and I carry it with me. So many of my food decisions, they're made not on the spur of the moment, but they're made beforehand. I plan, I plan what I'm going to eat. Uh, I would also mention the, 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 the mindless eating. That's what I used to engage in was the mindless eating. And at the picture, I think a lot of y'all would identify with the hand to the mouth, maybe watching television. And it's almost as if someone else's hand is putting the food in my mouth. Automatic, mindless eating. And the next thing I look down and whatever the container is, it's empty. And I have virtually no conception that I ate that food. What I, what I do now is I, I try to engage in mindful eating. I pay attention to the food I eat. And when I have my breakfast, it takes me about 30 or 40 minutes to eat my breakfast. And I, I, eat, I follow a food plan called Volumetrics, where I eat things where I get large portions. And then I control, I weigh and measure my food. I control how much I'm eating. It's very important to me to pay attention to the food I'm eating. Um, and then the, just the general thought of mindfulness that your, your, your mind goes in the direction that you send it. If you send it with negative thoughts and, you know, I'm a bum, I'll never do this, I can never do this plan, I'll never lose any weight, your mind is going to pull up things from your memory to reinforce that. But if you put your mind on positive thoughts, and do your best, then your mind can go in the, in the proper direction. Um, oh, this is a good story. It makes me look bad. This was back when I was losing my weight back in probably 2008 and things were going well. I was taking off weight. I don't even know how many pounds I'd lost, but I was, I was losing weight. And then I had a week, one week, where I did, I did 63 miles between on the elliptical and walking. I did a couple of yoga classes. 
my calories were spot on and, and I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm six two, so I get a lot of calories and, and my calories were at 2,500 calories. I ate exactly what I was supposed to eat and I climbed on the scale and I hadn't lost any weight that week. Well, I wasn't in OA, I wasn't in any group. I didn't call anyone and talk to them about it. I got mad and I ate over a pound of chocolate just because I was mad. That's lunacy. That is not normal thinking. I didn't even enjoy it. I wolfed the food. That's, you know, we, we deal with not only the uh, uh, eating too much, but the eating behaviors. If you're wolfing your food and eating it quickly, it changes your perception of what you eat. Uh, the other thing I would mention to people is that 97% of the people that you meet in Overeaters Anonymous want you to succeed. But I have met people in the rooms that tried to sabotage my program and discourage me. I would hope that everyone here is an adult and you're going to realize that those people are around. I'm going to read a passage from As Bill Sees It. Yes, this is AA literature, but all AA literature is OA approved. Seems to be a little misunderstanding with some people. This is on page 138. Two roads for old timers. The, the founders of many groups ultimately divide into two classes known in AA slang as elder statesmen and bleeding deacons. The elder statesman sees the wisdom of the group's decision to run itself and holds no resentment over his reduced status. His judgment fortified by considerable experience is sound. He is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting developments. The bleeding deacon is just as surely convinced that the group cannot get along without him. He constantly confides for re-election to office and continues to be consumed with self-pity. Nearly every old timer in our society has gone through this process in some degree. Happily, most of them survive and live to become elder statesmen. They become the real and permanent leadership of AA. And my, my only warning is, again, that you will run into people in the rooms, people that you meet in the rooms, and they have something in mind. They're telling you, well, you're not working the program properly. And I'll just tell you, I run into those people. I, the, my local group here, it's basically 30 women and me. And somebody told me, well, no, you can't get a female sponsor. Well, thank you. That means I can't have a sponsor you. But anyway, but I didn't listen to her. Um, oh, and I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, on my YouTube channel, when I, when I talk to people sometimes, I will send them uh, a video. You don't see my face and, and of, of me doing my recovery story. I'll send them a video of things that work for me, specific things that I do to work my program. And then I send them a video of my morning prayers, the prayers that I do in the morning. And that's, that's one way to be of service. There's also lots of recovery stories, people from our local meeting. 
they give their recovery stories and we put the audio only on a YouTube video. And uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's a positive, positive thing that I do. Let's see. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For me, I've got to turn to God for help. My best thinking is a bad idea. Before I was in this program, my goal was to stuff myself and to search and try to find foods where I could stuff myself with too much food and get away with it. That's a pretty lousy goal. Now, we are up to right thinking follows right action. That's from the AA, I'm losing my mind. It's from the Overeaters Anonymous 12 and 12. It's very important for me to understand that I have to do the right thing and my thinking will come along. It's not I change my thinking and then that will convince me to do the right thing. I have a problem. I'm a compulsive overeater. I don't want to get into the conversation, will I be one for the rest of my life, but I'm one today. I need to take care of what's going on today. I do want to read a passage from the AA 12 and 12. Oops. This is on page 68, the middle paragraph. Many will at once ask, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? Why that is perfection. This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Only step one, where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol, can be practiced with absolute perfection. The remaining 11 steps state perfect ideals. They are goals towards which we look and the measuring stick by which we estimate our progress. Seen in this light, step six is still difficult, but not at all impossible. The only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and keep trying. To me, it's very comforting to think in terms of the fact that I don't have to work the steps perfectly. And if I'm reading that passage properly, you've got to get step one. You've got to see and have no reservations for the fact that you're a compulsive overeater. We're not like other people. Normal things that normal people do, do not give good results for us they give bad results. The occasional treat or whatever is not for me. For me to eat a piece of cake is the equivalent 
of an alcoholic saying, oh, it's New Year's, I'll have a couple of drinks. Not gonna work out well. If I eat a piece of cake, that's not gonna work out well. Now I do know people in the program that they will take back their binge foods and eat them and say, well, this isn't too bad. But in some cases in a couple of weeks, their face is back in a pile of food. Some cases I know a guy that it took him a few months, but his face was back in a pile of food. And I've heard from many people that once you lose your abstinence, it's harder to get it back. I've heard that many times. But I do want to suggest to people that you be aware. I've, I've listened to hundreds of the OA recovery stories from the LA uh, intergroups light a candle. And the vast majority of people that have a long abstinence, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they broke their abstinence in there at some point. So this should not be something that I'm not so egotistical to think that it's not going to happen to me. Oh, it happened to those people, but it's not going to happen to me. Now, I will show you, there's no magic to these, but I have a card in my, I carry in my wallet with my binge foods written down on it. These are the foods I, I care enough that I wrote it down and I laminated this card. And you'll actually see there's a couple little notes because after I made the card, I had to add some things to my list. There was a time when I was abstinent, when I was eating uh, hard candy, I thought I was okay with it. And I started out, I would eat like two Ricola cough drops a day. I eat them for the sugar. I like the sugar. And then a year later, I'm eating eight Werther's a day and I want more. And I realized that's a binge food for me. I can't eat that food. I added pizza. Pizza at one for a long time was not on my list. And then my wife ordered pizza one night and I thought, well, I'll have a couple pieces of pizza for dinner. I ate them. And then I started fantasizing about that box in the refrigerator. And I realized that's a binge food. That's something that I need to not eat. No piece of pizza is worth me breaking my abstinence over. And uh, one of the things early on that I came up with for me is questions to be answered concerning food. Is this nutritious food in a portion, portion that contributes to my overall health? Am I physically hungry? Have I had an eating binge with this food in the past? Is this food a part of my eating plan? Those are things that I think about in terms of, is this something I need to eat? And then the other thing that I have in my wallet is what I'm going to do if I break my absence. I have a whole plan worked out. I was at a meeting one time and somebody who I admired very much in the program told about how she broke her abstinence. She went to a party and she ate something. I don't even know what she ate. Boom, she was out of the rooms for a year and a half. And it's not always immediate. That's the thing. I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories from people that it's, you, you might think it's always immediate. It's not. Sometimes it comes later, but it takes you to the same place. And one of the biggest things on my plan about if I break my abstinence is not keeping it a secret. Every meeting I go to, and I go to three meetings, 
I go to my Thursday meeting, which we meet face to face again, but we also, it's a hybrid, we also meet on Zoom, 5.30 every Thursday, anyone is welcome. And then I go to a, a meeting on Tuesday night called In the Rooms. And then I go to the men's Sunday night Zoom meeting, it's a, a speaker meeting. And I've been going to that one for, I don't know, four or five years. I, no, maybe just four, four years. Um, the only wrong way to work the steps is not to work them. That's the only wrong way to do the steps. And then I have my four favorite books. I like all OA approved literature. I've never read any literature or pamphlet that I didn't think was helpful. My four favorite books are the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the book As Bill Sees It, the AA 12 and 12, and the book Living Sober. And my opinion of the book Alcoholics Anonymous has changed through the years. When I first came into the program, I was, everyone talked about the first 164 pages. And then one day I'd been in for years and I thought, well, I'll read some of the uh, recovery stories in the back. And they were, they were, I thought they were quite good. And then I discovered the appendices and the preface. My opinion of the big, of the book Alcoholics Anonymous now is it's all good, every word all of it, the whole enchilada. And I would also suggest to people that uh, uh, if you're gonna restrict what books you're willing to look at, that's a bad idea. I've heard people in, in OA meetings, I don't even comprehend this, say, I don't like the big book. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's the basic text of our entire society. And of course, you're free to work the program. I've, I've heard of people that recover and they never, they never will read the big book. They work the steps, but they're not going to read that. And then I've heard other people at a meeting say, I was not at the meeting, but I heard about it say, the big book is all you need. You don't need those other books. Well, that doesn't make sense to me either. In fact, there's something in the big book that it, it talks about, see what the religious people have to offer. See if they have books that will help you read those books. In other words, you, you do what, what's going to help you recover. Um, oh, it's time for me to do, I'm going to tell you some of the things I do at, at my prayers in the morning, if I can find them. I don't have my stuff very well organized. This is the, and I do other prayers. My daughter was nice enough to do a sheet for me. First step prayer. Dear Lord, help me to see and admit that I am powerless over my compulsive overeating. Help me to understand how my compulsive overeating has led to unmanageability in my life. Help me this day to understand the true meaning of powerlessness. Remove from me all denial of my compulsive overeating. Dear God, my name is Rick and I need your help today with my compulsive overeating. In Jesus' name, amen. And then another reading which I do is out of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, starting on page 416. And this was suggested to me, I don't even know, six months ago, and I, I hadn't stopped doing it. 
It helped me a great deal to become convinced that alcoholism was a disease, not a moral issue. That I had been drinking as a result of a compulsion, even though I had not been aware of the compulsion at the time. And that sobriety was not a matter of willpower. The people of AA had something that looked much better than what I had, but I was afraid to let go of what I had in order to try something new. There was a certain sense of security in the familiar. At last, acceptance proved to be the key to my drinking problem. After I'd been around AA for seven months, tapering off alcohol and pills, and not finding the program working very well, I was finally able to say, okay, God, it is true that I of all people, and strange as it may seem, and even though I didn't give my permission, really, really am an alcoholic of sorts, and it's all right with me. Now, what am I going to do about it? When I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not had a single compulsion to drink, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. That fits me like a glove. I need to take care of me and what I'm doing. And if I accept the world like it is, I have a chance of being happy. If I'm out whining, complaining all the time, all that does is get me upset. And that's not going to help anybody. And then I, I also like the passage uh, I had in order to try something new, there's a certain sense of security in the familiar. For me, it was more, I was rather afraid to work the steps because what if it doesn't work? Well, I wasn't very bright because if it didn't work, I am no worse off than I am now. Um, anyway, now I do other things in my prayers, but those those are a couple, couple of things. All righty, and we get to listen to a pamphlet. And this was pretty neat. I printed off this pamphlet. It's an AA pamphlet, and they let you print off one of them. It's a member's eye view of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a long pamphlet. We're only gonna read one little bit. And this is on page 14. There's a widely held belief in AA that if a newcomer will simply continue to attend meetings, something will finally rub off on you. And the implication of course, is that something which rubs off on this so-called miracle of AA. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that many people in AA accept this statement quite literally. I have observed them over the years. They faithfully attend meetings, faithfully waiting for something to rub off. 
The funny thing about it is that something is rubbing off on them, death. They sit there week after month after year while mental, spiritual, and physical rigor mortis sets in. I believe the real miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, the something that will rub off, we hope, is simply the alcoholic's willingness to act. It's the actions, it's the things that you do. And I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed, the only requirement to attend meetings is the desire to stop eating compulsively. Not everybody gets the program right away. I have the bad tendency to think that I got it after six months, so everyone else should get it after six months. No, that's not the way it works. It takes some people longer. I know a, a podcast of a woman named Ziva it took her 28 years before she found her abstinence. And what's beautiful about that story is the fact that she called her sponsor before she had an eating binge and that there was nice enough, somebody nice enough to sponsor somebody who'd been in and out of the rooms for 28 years and to work with that person and give them, give them a hand. Uh, I, I work with anybody that calls that says, I want a sponsor. I don't, I don't turn anybody down. I've been given a wonderful gift and I just, I wouldn't feel right telling somebody, no, I'm not going to work with you. Unfortunately, the majority of people that call and ask me to sponsor them, they either never call back or, but that's a, that's a different issue. And I'm a very, very laid back, easygoing sponsor. The first thing I tell anybody is you're an adult, you make your own decisions. I might make suggestions, but I never ever tell someone you, you have to do this. Uh, again, I, I, I don't mean to be Mr. Negative, but there are people in the program that they're mean to the people that they sponsor. And they, they say they'll sponsor them, they won't take their phone calls, they won't return their phone calls. Um, I just think that's, that's very sad. And, and we, can, we can control what we do. When people call me that are, that are in the Overeaters Anonymous, I call them back even some people that I don't really like very much. I figure I should call everyone back. And, and I, wanna, I, want, I want everyone that comes to our meetings to recover. I don't wish ill on anyone. Actually, that would speak pretty poorly of me if, if I wanted somebody not to recover. I don't have that character defect. Let's see. Oh, our next reading is from the book, Living Sober. It's on page six, and this is, we're dealing with a 24-hour plan. This is very big to me. Although we realize that alcoholism is a permanent, irreversible condition, our experience has taught us to make no long-term promises about staying sober. We have found it more realistic and more successful to say I'm not taking a drink just for today. And I will stop there and say that when I, when I pray my prayers, I pray God help me to get through today. My total plan is to, with God's help, not have an eating binge today. I would say that I don't intend to have eating binges for the rest of my life, 
but that's a you know it's strange for me to even talk about what's going to happen 10 years from now what does that even mean even if we drank yesterday we can plan not to drink today we may drink to no tomorrow who knows whether we'll even be alive then but for this 24 hours we decide not to drink no matter what the temptation or provocation we determine to go to any extremes necessary to avoid a drink today. Our friends and families are understandably weary of hearing us vow, this time I really mean it, only to see us lurch home loaded. So we do not promise them or even each other not to drink. Each of us promises only herself or himself. It is after all our own health and life at stake. We are not, we, not our family or friends, have to take the necessary steps to stay well. If we desire to, if the desire to drink is really strong, many of us chop the 24 hours down into smaller parts. We decide not to drink for, say, at least one hour. We can endure the temporary discomfort of not drinking for just one more hour, then one more, and so on. Many of us began our recovery in just this way. In fact, every recovery from alcoholism began with one sober hour. And I am adamant, not only for myself, but the people that I sponsor. And they start talking about, I'm in this program for the rest of their life. And I actually stop them and I say, let's take care of today. And I tell myself that because today is really all we have. The 24-hour plan, it, it gets to be a little bit, uh, you, you hear it, but that I do good on that. I'm gonna give myself credit that I do good on that to take care of my eating today. That doesn't mean I don't buy groceries for a week. Actually, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread, and I'm glad that no one let me write the Lord's Prayer because I would have prayed for groceries for the whole week. It's a good thing that I was not allowed to write that prayer. That was supposed to be funny. I'm not qualified at all. Um, I have a sponsor. I talk to her five, five times a week for about 20 minutes. I listen to her and frequently, more often than not, I follow her suggestions. I sponsor other people. I'd like to think that I help them in their recovery. Some of them have indicated to me that, that the things that I do with them are helpful. It's helpful to me. It's helpful to me. More than once, I've made a suggestion to a sponsee and I realized I should be doing that. <laughs> I, I affected my own my own program by making a suggestion to someone else. I have a food plan and I got it at a health institute because we don't get into outside issues. I won't say which one. 25% um, of the calories I eat is protein, 50% is carbohydrates and 25% fat. Now I will show you my food journal, I don't, I don't do this every day. I do it every now and then just to check. And you probably can't see all the details, but I put down how many calories I eat, how many grams of fat, how many grams of protein, and how many grams of carbohydrates. 
And then at the end of the day, I total it all up and see what percentages. And like I say, I eat very, very similar, similarly from day to day. I don't have to, and I do keep a food journal. I've kept a food journal for 13 years. I don't see me not doing that anymore. It's helpful to me. Um, I mentioned that I do the volumetrics eating plan and I eat six times a day. It was recommended to me at that health institute that I eat five or six times a day. Nobody has to beg me to eat that snack at night. I'm good with that. Um, I weigh and measure my food. I consume at least seven ounces of nuts or seeds in a week. Now remember, I'm a big guy. Maintenance calories for me is somewhere around 2,800 to 3,000 calories in a day. I eat two to four servings of fish per week. I eat two to four servings of beans in a week. And I try to eat foods closer to their natural state. And I know that we're talking about working our program. We don't want to get too much into details. But the best example would be, I will eat an ear of corn. I do not eat corn chips. The corn is actually nutritious. The corn chips are not. They're a binge food. Actually, chips are a binge food for me. But uh, they do virtually nothing for me nutritionally. I try to eat food, and I enjoy my foods, but I try to eat foods to nourish my body. That's my goal. I want to be healthy. Um, oh, and, and the little thing I showed you where I figured up the percentages, I went to that health institute in 2007, and I never did that for nine years. I just magically thought, it's, it, it, for me, it was worth figuring out what are the percentages of what I'm really eating? And when I did the percentages, I was shocked to find out that 69% of my calories came from carbs and I didn't eat enough protein or enough fat. So I made adjustments and it helped me to feel better. Uh, exercise for me is equal in importance to what I eat. I will, uh, and, and ideally, I would, involve, I would involve stretching, cardio, weights, and core. I would do all those. The reality is I do a lot of cardio. I do a tiny amount of weights and a tiny amount of stretching. And I do core. You can't help but do some core. And then when, after I have my breakfast, I go on a three-mile walk with the dog. The easiest way to accomplish that is just to name your dog three miles, and then you can tell everybody, I walked three miles today. Um, I do try for about 10,000 steps a day, and understand that from a technical point of view, view the, if you do cardio, it raises your resting metabolic rate for two or three hours. If you do weights, it raises your resting metabolic rate for like 14 hours. In other words, that engine is idling quicker. And, and I, I still have some arthritis in my knees, but I can, I can get out and walk. And I, because of the COVID, I haven't been to the gym. I go occasionally, but not like I used to. The days when I have a hard workout, a real hard workout, I'm there for a few hours. I don't want to overeat. Those are rest days. In other words, that's, I still work my program, but I, when I do a very hard workout, I don't have the desire to overeat. For me, exercise is like cheating. 
And if nothing else, it makes me fitter. My primary goal is to be fit. My secondary goal is to control my weight. Um, when I'm out walking, I'm praying and meditating. I've already told the three meetings that I go to in a week. I make some outreach calls every day. And I have advice. If you don't like making outreach calls, continue to make more outreach calls until you like them. My advice is if you don't like going to meetings, and I actually got this advice from someone at this meeting. If you don't like going to meetings, keep going to more until you like going to them. And then my contention is if you do not like exercise, you continue to do more exercise until you get to the point that you like it and you want to do more. It's a rule of thumb that tells you if you're doing enough and you're the one that knows. You're the one that knows. I like, I will quote Zig Ziglar, the exercise program of taking a bath and pulling the plug and then fighting the current. That's not a good exercise program. That's not gonna do much for you. And then I will also tell you that at one point, I had a fear of being hungry and that sounds weird. And this actually happened before I came to the Overeaters Anonymous. I read a book and their suggestion was if you have a fear of being hungry, I just, maybe fear is too strong a term, but I didn't want to be hungry. I wanted to eat all the time and never be hungry. You, you, I ate my breakfast and then I didn't eat anything until dinner, six o'clock that night. And every hour I journaled how hungry I was and what was my anxiety level. And what I discovered, and I've only done that twice. I've only done it two times. But what it taught me was that your hunger doesn't just continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. There's an ebb and a flow. And you can tell if, if, you, if you have just a desire to eat or, or a craving for a specific food, if it's real sudden, boom, all of a sudden I have to eat now. And it can only be such and such a food. That's not physical hunger. Physical hunger is more gradual, and you might have food preferences, but you're welcome, you're, you, you would welcome eating any food. And, and for me, it was very, and, and just as a footnote, I didn't eat fewer calories that day. I just didn't eat for that eight hours through the middle of the day, or whatever it is, from breakfast to, to six o'clock, I guess it's longer, maybe 10 hours. Um, I made up for the calories later that night. But that was, that was what I did. And of course, we have the fear forms. If you have a fear, it was very helpful to me when I started thinking about that it's normal to wake up in the morning and be hungry, and then you eat something. And it's normal if, you, if, you, if you're hungry before a meal. It's abnormal to be eating all the time, even when you're not hungry. And when I work with people that I sponsor, I have the same suggestion to every person I sponsor and to myself. If you're physically hungry and it's going to be more than an hour before your next meal, have a snack. That is my suggestion. You should not, I, I have one person I sponsored, he would go to bed hungry. I don't understand that, but anyway. Um, but anyway, we talked about, and, and, and to learn to differentiate, learning to differentiate between physical hunger, 
just the general desire to eat or craving for a specific food. If you walk into a bakery and all of a sudden, 60 seconds later, it's an hour after lunch, you have a huge desire to eat one of those giant donuts. That's not physical hunger. That's a craving for a specific food. And I learned to live with the desire to eat more. Unfortunately, every time I have a meal, if you were to put the same meal down in front of me again, I would eat it, but I don't. And I think all of us in this program, we come to a point where we realize we can't go on living like we are. We've got to get to something about the food, the, the compulsive overeating, but we don't know how to do it and we need help. To work this program, I have to do four things. I have to turn to God for help. I have to work the steps. I have to be in the group, Overeaters Anonymous, and I can never under any circumstances touch my alcoholic foods. Overeaters Anonymous has done wonderful things for me. I'm very grateful to this program and I'm so glad I found it. And I'm grateful to everyone here for sharing in the program and being a part of my recovery. Thank you all for coming. And thanks to the people that asked me to speak and I'll, I'll pass.